recorded live from Hong Kong and Toronto. This is the PR and Law Podcast. The PR and Law Podcast. Turn it up, turn it up. With your hosts, Cam McMurchie and you and Christy. Welcome to episode number seven of the PR and Law Podcast. I'm your host, Cam McMurchie, along with you and Christy. Hello, Cam. Uh, you and I'm a PR guy based in Hong Kong and publisher of the Digital Bits PR and Communications newsletter at digitalbitspr.com. Ewan is an employment lawyer and partner at Duntroon LLP in Toronto, Canada, and online at duntroonllp.law. So if you're interested in the podcast, if you like the show, please share it with a friend. Please mention it. Share the good word because we're seeing a lot of uh, a lot of new subscribers coming online and it's great to see. It's our only way of really getting the word out. And you can follow us on social media, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at PR Law Podcast, P-R-L-A-W Podcast on all of those social networks. And you can also support us on Patreon as well. That would mean a lot. You can go to our show website at prlawpodcast.com and click support the show. Last but not least, if you prefer to watch our podcast, which isn't very exciting to watch, but um, you can pop over to YouTube. I know a lot of people like to listen to their podcasts that way. And we are on YouTube as well. Uh, we have a lot to talk about today, Ewan. What's happening with you? Oh, well, you know, it's another beautiful sunny day. It's nice warm weather here in uh, in Toronto, Cameron. We've, uh, we're like into the 20s, and that's very, very exciting. Um, of course, the warmer weather has led to some problems. And yesterday, this was all over social media. There's a huge park, one of the huge parks here in central Toronto. It's called Trinity Bellwoods Park. Um, and the parks were just reopened as of Tuesday, and wouldn't you know it, there were hundreds and hundreds of people in the park um, not practicing social distancing, not wearing masks, and I have to say it's really, really disheartening when you see stuff like that. You know, we're all trying to do our part here, and um, I understand people want to get out of their houses, but um, it was really frustrating, and um, yeah, and and just, again, dis disheartening. You know what I mean? Yeah, I can hear you. Let's get into that. Okay, so you and, I mean, you've given a quick update from there, but in terms of, like, caseloads so far, I mean, there's we're up to 5.31 million cases globally, 2.11 million recovered, 342,000 people have died of COVID-19, which is a tragedy, really. The U.S. is still getting worse. Uh, they're up to 1.66 million cases. Uh, 335,000 people have recovered and uh, almost 100,000 people dead already uh, in the United States. It's, um, it's, it's really unbelievable how, how badly the U.S. has mismanaged the whole process. And even here, we had some new cases last week brought in. Uh, we're up to 1,066 cases overall um, and only four deaths here so far. And um, our cases ticked up a little bit um, just because of people flying into Hong Kong. And there's still uh, you know, a 14-day quarantine in place if, if you do arrive here but um, you know some of the people that are landing at the airport have picked it up uh, in the United States or, or Pakistan seems to be a place where uh, a lot of people are, are bringing it back from so it's still lingering around and it you know I, I was I went out for a hike today and it was interesting because you know ever since January 
um, you know, I was in, in Davos, Switzerland for the, for the World Economic Forum, and that's when it really started to make news. And, you know, when I got back to Hong Kong in later January, uh, you know, everyone has, was wearing masks already. And, um, you know, we're still doing that. I mean, I, I do not leave the house without a mask on. And, you know, even exercising, I mean, oftentimes we'll wear, we'll wear a mask up to sort of where a, a hiking trail might start, and then you can take the mask off and sort of wrap it around your arm or something while you're, while you're hiking and then put it back on when you're around people again. But then I thought, you know what, this, this could go on and on because it, it surfaced again this week that, you know, there could be a second wave. It could get bad this summer. It could get bad next fall. And, uh, you know, the whole mask wearing thing looks like it's just, it's going to be indefinite. It's really, really sort of hit me that, that this isn't temporary and this is might, might be the new normal for quite a long time. Well, yeah, I think, you know, Bonnie Henry, who you may have seen in the press. Yes, very uh, familiar. She's a rock star now. Yeah, yeah, she is. She's a rock star. She's, she's, she's had a, a song written about her. She's got a pair of shoes that have been made. To be clear, she's, honor. for listeners, she's the, uh, she's the health, actually, I don't know her actual title, but she's basically uh, has, or was having daily press conferences in BC, the province of British Columbia in Canada, talking about uh, COVID-19 updates. Yeah, and but one of the comments she made, um, Cam, was in the history of pandemics, the history of the human race and pandemics, never once has there not been a second wave. So, you know, her argument was, look, this isn't a matter of if, it's a matter of when, unless somehow COVID is unique from any other pandemic the human race has seen throughout its history. And uh, I, somehow, I somehow doubt that that's the case. Yeah. And the mask wearing thing, I mean, we've gone over it ad nauseum here, uh, you know, on multiple shows. Um, but I mean, there, there's now lots of evidence that it helps. But I just like even me and I'm a, I'm a big supporter of wearing the mask. Um, I would like to be done with it, though. <laughs> I mean, like when I leave the house in the morning at, you know, 830, a mask goes on that doesn't come off until I get home at seven, eight o'clock at night. And, um, yeah, it, it like, it's not like you take it off when you get to work. I mean, that's where you definitely need to have it on because you've got a lot of people in a small area. Um, and it's just, you know, a couple of times when I've been in a, a meeting room with maybe just one or two other people, sometimes someone will say, I don't mind if you take your mask off. And then I have done so. And it's felt weird. <laughs> it's felt like this is, I feel exposed. <laughs> um, and, and oftentimes I've just put it back on just because it's now become more comfortable, more normal to be, have on. Uh, it's, it's really odd. And it's something like out of a science fiction movie or something. I mean, it's just, everyone's wearing them all the time now. Yeah. I mean, it, I, I mean, you said it, right. This is just sort of the new normal. I don't really even think twice about it anymore. I mean, there were, there were periods where I'd have to try and remind myself each and every time going out the door, you know, put the mask on or with my daughter, I've got to remember to put the mask on. I mean, now it's just like putting on a pair of shoes. Um, you know, I, I just, I just do it. I don't even think about it anymore. It's subconscious at this point. And so when you think about like, when can we not wear a mask? I assume that would be when there's a vaccine or, you know, the, the virus is just stamped out. I don't see how that's going to happen at this point. Um, so, and, and even if they discovered a vaccine today, it's going to take a very long time to get that um, produced in a quantity sufficient to give to nearly everyone <laughs> in the world. So, I mean, it's not, um, I think we're a year. I've heard one to two to three years away from everybody being able to access a vaccine. That's a, just a terrifying terrifying thought but yeah i mean we've seen an uptick in numbers here too cam um you know ontario has reported five consecutive days now with more than 400 new cases 
That's um, a lot. That's not, that's, yeah, that's really not good. Now they've sort of attributed it to the, the, the mother's day celebrations that we, we had recently that people were, were sort of getting out and interacting with others in a way that they hadn't before. And were taking those risks for mother's day. Um, so much of that uptick has been attributed to that, but anyway, you cut it, you know, we've started to loosen the restrictions. The last thing you want to see is, uh, is, is an uptick in, in numbers. So hopefully those numbers start to correct themselves again. All right. Yeah. Uh, hopefully, I mean, uh, cause it looks like this could be this way, uh, for the long haul. Um, I do want to say Ewan that, uh, here there's been no concerns. In fact, People were out in Hong Kong today, several thousand of them at certain locations in the city, and they weren't there to eat or enjoy their company. They were there for a very specific purpose, and we're going to get into that on the other side. Continue the debate with us on social media. Join us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at PR Law Podcast. All one word, P-R-L-A-W Podcast. Send us your questions now by email to askusatprlawpodcast.com. That's all one word, askusatprlawpodcast.com. Or on social media with the hashtag PRLawPod. That's hashtag P-R-L-A-W-P-O-D. All right, you and I think you saw the uh, news that um, a, a uh, an anti-subversion law, a security bill, is going to be passed uh, for Hong Kong. Uh, has there been much coverage of that back there? Well, n- no. I, I think, it, in, in short, not in the Canadian press. I mean, I definitely saw stuff in the New York Times, in the Washington Post, but um, it hasn't really been covered uh, all that much in the in, in Canadian media. Okay. It, um, I mean, obviously it's a, it's a very big deal here and, um, not to go, um, and recap an entire history here, but the importance of this is because when, uh, the British returned Hong Kong to China, uh, obviously there was a, an agreement for 50 years that Hong Kong would maintain its way of life, uh, you know, have its own legal system, currency, international boundary, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so there is a constitution that we abide by here in Hong Kong called the Basic Law. But there is a, a clause in the Basic Law. It's actually Article 23, and it commits Hong Kong to passing a, uh, a security law, an anti-subversion or secession law, um, basically to, you know, protect the sovereignty of, of, of um, China, um, and, and, and not undermine the government. And I mean, obviously it's very controversial because however it might be worded, uh, it could really cast a wide net in terms of who might get caught up in something like that. So in 2003, uh, the first attempt was made to pass that bill um, by, and that was only a few years after the handover, uh, but there were massive street protests uh, and the protests were so big. They were the largest ever in the territory at the time that the bill was shelved and the chief executive at that time resigned. And so ever since then, there's been talk of it coming back because we are committed to passing that law, uh, but it's just never made it through the legislature. And I think after the protests here last year and looking at, we do have a legislative election coming up this year that Beijing figured we're going to get farther and farther away from passing this kind of bill in Hong Kong. So, the Chinese government took it upon itself to introduce a law. Uh, They're doing it in Beijing. Basically the Chinese leadership meets twice a year uh, to discuss the issues of the day only for a week or two each time. Uh, So it's much different than sort of in Canada, the United States. 
uh, but they get a lot done in those couple of weeks. And so this this bill was introduced. It has not passed yet, uh, but it, it aims to stamp out treason, secession, sedition, or subversion. Anything that sort of impacts state power. They don't want um, any attempt for foreigners or foreign governments or foreign organizations to try and undermine uh, China's control of the city uh, or China's sovereignty. And I think the reason it is such a big deal is because, yes, Hong Kong is autonomous from China for the most part. And taking this sort of drastic action, um, it's... um, it's a very strong action to bypass the legislature in Hong Kong and enact something like this. It actually has not been enacted yet. Uh, it does go through a bit of a process in Beijing, but it looks like, you know, if things if things go smoothly, it could become law by uh, the 28th, so later this week. So it's not a long process. Well, now, Cam, is, is I mean, is this something that will effectively be rubber stamped in Hong Kong? I mean, is there is there any is there any opportunity to to engage in 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 debate or to possibly shut it down um, at least within the the government as it exists in Hong Kong? No, there's going to be no debate in Hong Kong. It is completely bypassing any of the checks and balances that would be in place here for a piece of legislation. Um, and the way Beijing justifies this is that it has to do with national security. And so under the basic law, those are the only areas where Hong Kong really cedes its power to Beijing is in th- areas like national security, um, even international trade to some degree, although Hong Kong has its own seat on the world, uh, the World Trade Organization and the World Health Organization as well. Um, so, I mean, this is a it's a it's a very drastic step, but they there is language in the basic law that allows this kind of thing if it if they feel like there's a threat to national security, uh, which they feel like they do. Now, what's interesting is there were some reports today that I saw where. You know, some of the legislators in Beijing said that this really does target a very small number of people and that, you know, if Hong Kongers want to go out and, you know, mark the June 4th vigil, the Tiananmen Square massacre anniversary, that's fine. If they want to criticize the Communist Party, that's fine. If they want to criticize China, that's fine. But they don't want people thinking they're trying to overthrow the party or separate Hong Kong from China. That's their their red line. And I think when you when you look back to all of the protests that happened last year, a lot of awful things, really. I mean, I, I don't want to go through them all on this on this podcast, but there were two that really caught Beijing's attention. One was when protesters pulled down the Chinese flag from a from Victoria Harbor. Um, it's it's flying over there at the Kowloon side you and you've probably seen it. Uh, and, and they threw that into the harbor. And that made huge headlines in China. And then the other one was, you know, they went to the liaison office, which is Hong Kong or China's China's office in the city and uh, spray painted all over the national emblem uh, and flag and things like that. And this is almost an issue of face to some degree, Uh, though, despite all of the other things that happened last year, you know, it's those very symbolic ones that that Beijing has zero tolerance for uh, because of what those things represent. And I think, you know, if they do catch people taking those kinds of actions, my guess is they're the ones that are going to fall afoul of this law. But why, I mean, why now, Cam? Why specifically now? I mean, why not, um, you know, in the aftermath of, you know, those two, those two particular incidents that you, um, that you spoke about? I mean, why, why now? It just seems, I mean, there has to be some explanation. Is there, does it have to do with sort of the, the broader scope of what's going on globally? You know, is there, is there a coronavirus angle to this? Uh, is there an, you know, 
Does it have anything to do with the ongoing trade negotiations with the United States? It just seems, why now? Uh, it's kind of all of that stuff. I think, um, number one, I mean, China has wanted this to be passed for 23 years now, you know, since the handover. They've waited a long time. And, you know, it, it hasn't been able to be passed. It hasn't even been introduced a second time. Because it's really, locally, it's just seen as, you know, just completely in opposition to sort of the way of life here to introduce a law like that. And there's many people, I don't know the, the legal code here well enough, but I mean, there's many people that say, you know, those kinds of actions like treasonous uh, actions or sedition, that, that they're covered already um, by Hong Kong law. There doesn't need to be a new law to cover these things. I don't know if that's true or not, to be honest. But I think, you know, with elections coming up this year, uh, I think Beijing is worried that most of the legislature is going to be filled with pro-democracy people who represent the protest side. And it's going to become even more difficult to pass this kind of legislation. Uh, so I think they're a little bit spooked by that. And they realize after the, the protests last year were so severe, I mean, shutting down the airport, uh, you know, there were people who, who died, not from, you know, direct police action. Uh, but, you know, there was a lot of people hospitalized. It was traumatizing for the city. And I think Beijing would like to have some additional powers to deal with some of the worst offenders um, in their view. And because this is something that was actually in the basic law um, at the time of the handover, they see it as it's urgent. The task has become urgent to pass this. And with COVID-19, there are more people indoors, less likely to go out to the street, I think. I, I don't know for sure that that's a factor, but it could have been. Um, but, you know, today, you and as I'm talking to you, there are protests going on. Uh, they Tear gas was fired by police in Causeway Bay a couple of hours ago. Um, I mean, it's people are angry, of course. I mean, when you do... It's this kind of action from Beijing that's just not, there's no checks and balances, they're not accountable for it, there's nothing. Uh, people get angry and they feel more and more desperate and more and more without any, without any say in the city's future. And so I think, um, you know, we're basically bracing ourselves for another very, very volatile and violent summer. Well, I mean, and is there any sense as to what, what, are, what are the powers that this legislation would, would give Beijing. I mean, can they effectively go into people's homes and say, you know, we're invoking, you know, section blah, 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 blah. And we're taking you, you know, we're taking you to prison. We're taking you to the mainland. I mean, what, what sort of special powers will this, will this give Beijing? So everything is speculative at this point because actually it has not been drafted or if it has been drafted, it hasn't been shown to anyone. So basically right now it's an idea uh, and once it passes, I, China's got a very convoluted system up in Beijing, but apparently once it passes sort of the idea stage, they will sit down and draft the legislation. So when that happens, I think we'll have a, have a much better idea of, of, of who it touches on. But, you know, so far the signals, I mean, obviously Beijing's going to try and soothe the worst concerns. But, you know, one of the things I noticed is that this will be according to Hong Kong law. So if somebody is charged with, you know, one of these crimes, it will go before a Hong Kong judge. Uh, so it will be, it'll fall under British common law at that point, which is how, you know, Hong Kong functions. So that's, that's one good sign. I mean, it's going to be an open trial. You're going to see, um, you know, in many cases, sometimes Western judges adjudicating this. So that's, that's one part. But the, uh, the second part is, is you know, China, C.Y. Leung, actually, who was our previous uh, chief executive here, um, he said that the law could give mainland um, uh, 
intelligence agencies and law enforcement agencies the ability to open offices in Hong Kong and to operate in the city. And that, I think, is you know, a much bigger concern because at the moment that's not allowed. Uh, and so there isn't that. And pe- people suspect there might be some mainland police here, um, but it's, it's never been proven. And, you know, there's no strong evidence of that. But I think if, if, if you're going to have, yeah, mainland agencies like that operating in the city, uh, that that's obviously going to concern people as well. But in terms of like what the lines are, we don't know. We don't know until we, until we see what, what, what that law says. Hmm. Well, and how do you see this impacting the June 4th rally coming up? I mean, this sort of sounds like a, just a recipe for, for disaster, all these issues intermingling. Yeah. I, I was talking to somebody the other day, uh, just saying like a year ago, Hong Kong a year ago to Hong Kong today. And it's, it's almost like it's, it's completely transformed. I mean, a year ago there was talk of this, uh, uh, legislation that the, I can't remember the name of it now. Um, anyway, it was legislation that could see, um, um, you know, people who had committed crimes repatriated to the mainland to, to face trial, extradition. Um, and so, I mean, that was a, a concern people talked about, but that was it. We, we had no protests. We had no, no nothing. <laughs> and, you know, fast forward a year, and we're seeing one of the city's biggest fears, this, uh, this law, you know, basically being forced through by Beijing. And, of course, now we're very, we're comfortable almost with protest. I mean, there, this city is so safe and nonviolent. You know, what happened last year was really incredible. But the sad part about it is now there's almost violence expected at every protest. Like as it gets later into the day, you just know things are going to turn ugly because that's just, it's, it's expected now. You know, the police show up with the riot gear and people show up much more prepared to, to, to fight. And, um, you know, it, it gets ugly every time. I think the June 4th event, it's usually more subdued because it is a vigil. So, I mean, a lot of people, and I've gone to it, you'll sit in Victoria Park and you'll have light a candle um, and that sort of thing. But the, the, there is some level of protest sometimes later, later that night. But the big one every year is July 1st, which is the anniversary of the handover in 1997. And every year since the first introduction of the law back in 2003 that's what kicked it off actually so every year from 2003 onwards there's been a big protest on that day and usually it's something uh, about china anger about something that china is doing to sort of um try and reduce hong kong's level of autonomy and freedoms and i think you know this year yeah it'll be bad i think with this law it's going to be bad because they're antagonized even more people are even more angry um, and so there's even more reason for them to go out onto the street and even less to lose. I mean, if they really care about the city at this point, I mean, the, Beijing's already pushed through this law and yeah, there's just, it's desperate. I think for a lot of people, it's, it, it really is. What do you, what do you do? <laughs> I mean, what is, what does Hong Kong do under these circumstances to try and um, protect what level of autonomy it, it has left? Um, be it sort of legislatively or legally, politically, socially. Um, I mean, I mean, what are what are some of the things that that the city can do? Well, I, it's so hard to say until I see the language of this law. I mean, the signals coming out of Beijing are, and they had a quote today. Uh, somebody up there just said, "This is this targets a very small number of people." So, I mean, yes, if you're like right now, we do have a Hong Kong Independence Party in Hong Kong, so. You know, under under this law, that would not be permitted. 
Um, but the but the party is tiny. Like it's not it's not a it's not a mainstream party to begin with. I, I don't I really do not believe that most Hong Kong people actually want independence. Uh, what they want is just the one country, two systems principle adhered to and followed. You know that that's what most people will tell you. Um, so I don't know. I think this could be not bad. Uh, you know, if it is written in a way that really targets this sort of specific. Um, section of people or political beliefs. I mean, most countries do have similar laws um, to this, but I think my question for you, Ewan, is like, how does a, in a British common law system, and I know this isn't your expertise, but like, to me, that seems like it provides a little bit more defense as well. It's not like someone can get picked up off the street here and taken up to Shenzhen and tried, you know, in a private manner up there. Does that give you any 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 sense of uh, you know relief or safety? Well, I mean, again, it's 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 difficult. It's really difficult to speculate until you've had an opportunity to review what the specific legislation states, right, or the specific bill. You know, I mean, generally speaking, in a, in a in a British common law system, you're relying on on jurisprudence. So we we'd sort of look at the first case that's brought under under the the new law and then any subsequent decisions would would look to that initial case for for influence and and for guidance and that's sort of the wonder of a a jurisprudential system in the british common law in general is that you know we we don't we, we don't really make it up as we go along almost always there is some other common law jurisdiction we can look to or some bill in the past to sort of inform um, how we approach a particular piece of, of new legislation. But I mean, you know, the situation you're talking about, I mean, it really, this really sounds like something that's ultimately going to be rubber stamped. Um, it doesn't sound like there's going to be a great deal of debate. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I, I question how, how much longer is that judicial independence going to remain in in Hong Kong, given all of the pressures that are are being applied by by Beijing, and I think that's really the question, right? When you lose an independent judiciary, um, everything else crumbles around it very very quickly. Yeah, in my view, that is the last safeguard to Hong Kong's way of life. I want to get into that in a second, but I do want to play a quick clip from Carrie Lam, who is the chief executive here. It's a weird title for basically governor or mayor, but it's the one that we use. Here's what she had to say about this new law. Hong Kong is a free society. Hong Kong will remain to be a very free society where freedoms of expression, freedom of protest, freedom of uh, uh, journalism will stay because these are the core values of Hong Kong and are very much uh, protected by the basic law. So I do not expect that uh, protests will end. Um, There will be protests of all sorts uh, in Hong Kong, as we have seen. But the important thing is for the people of Hong Kong to realize that without protection of national security, many of the things that we enjoy, many of the things that we treasure, uh, will be lost. So this is really the time for us not to waste any more time and to get on with this uh, important legislative safeguards. So that's her thoughts on it. Um, back to the to the to the legal question. I mean, yeah, at the moment, I mean, we have had cases where um, you know police have been overly zealous at arresting people or charging them. Um, and it's gone into court and it's been thrown out. I mean, we have 
basically very, very antagonistic people to Beijing walking around freely in Hong Kong because the legal system was on their side and let them out, basically, or, or did not, you know, put them in jail, which is very different to China, which is where, you know, China operates in a system where the law is whatever the Communist Party thinks it is uh, on that day, and the judges report directly to the party. And um, oftentimes there's no, you know, there's no oversight at all of how their legal system works. So that obviously has people here worried. But as long as there is a separate legal system here, I think that helps. But you're right. I think how long can it hold up um, when there is all of this swirling around it? And I think people keep looking for signs. I keep being encouraged by it. I, I, I mentioned, you know, last week we had a politician who was who was um, thrown out of, she was elected and then she was tossed out of her seat in the legislature because uh, of her, her uh, she had a problem with the oath. And we've had cases here where people have sort of, played stunts when they're taking the oath of office because it does declare sort of loyalty to, to China. Uh, but the courts looked at it and said, you know what? She didn't really, this wasn't that bad. This isn't as bad as it was, uh, it was what she was accused of and, and, and gave her her seat back. So that's the, you know, that's the, that's the legal system working. I think um, it still shows that it is working independently because that obviously very much angered Beijing. Well, I mean, and to that point, you know, Carrie Lamb's quote about, well, we, you know, we need this law to protect our national security. I mean, it, it sort of presupposes that Hong Kong had no ability to protect <laughs> its security prior prior to the introduction or the suggestion that this is that this is a law that needs to be enacted or be passed. Um, and obviously, that's not that's not the case. It's not as though Hong Kong has been existing under a system of complete anarchy. Um, prior to the idea of of introducing new legislation, it's been it's been getting along for the most part just fine, and um, you know as as far as as far as I understand from from what I read, um, the the judicial system continues to get on just fine. So I think it's a it's a bit of a it it strikes me as a bit of a leap to suggest that this is sort of integral to to ongoing national security interests. Well, the other thing that really bothered Beijing is, uh, you know, we had politicians here fly to Washington and talk to people like Marco Rubio, who's been very pro-Hong Kong. Uh, Ted Cruz, oddly, is very pro-Hong Kong. And, um, you know, they, they've basically asked the United States to intervene or to put pressure on China or to help out. And this drives Beijing insane. I mean, they, this is a real problem. And they see this as 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 crossing the worst line, asking a foreign country to come in and somehow deal with an issue. Um, but, you know, there were times where I don't know that people would sing the Star Spangled Banner and things like that at these protests. So, I mean, and, and the U.S. did pass the, the, the Hong Kong Democracy Act last year, and they have power now to put sanctions on Hong Kong officials that they feel have, um, you know, hurt the freedoms in the economy, in, in, the, country, in the city. I don't want to call Hong Kong a country. Um, so that's something else that might play out. Uh, as this gets as this gets work uh, worse, I'm still a bit optimistic. I really have to see the the language. I don't have a problem in theory with any law that seeks to protect national security. Um, I think in theory that sounds fine, but how it's written and how it's enforced is absolutely everything. And I don't think we have the answers to those questions yet. Right. Yeah. Fair enough. Well, I mean, look, I came from a you're a PR guy. What I mean, what have been, what's been the impact from a PR perspective on on Hong Kong? I mean, you know, we get 
drips and drabs of, of what's going on there in, in, in our media and obviously in, in the U.S. media as well. But, um, I mean, between the protests and COVID um, and now this, you know, this, this, this law that's looking to be, to be enacted, um, this has hit Hong Kong's image pretty hard globally, I suspect. Um, I mean, are, are they doing anything to try and, and, and try and bolster their reputation globally or to, to attract tourism back? I mean, what, what, what's the city doing? Well, you know what? And I find this odd myself, actually. Like Hong Kong, it became sort of a more well-known place in the 80s. It was one of the tiger economies of Asia. Um, and, and that's when, you know, the 80s and 90s, it really became a financial center. In the 2000s, it just got richer and richer. And, and now it's a very, very wealthy place. But it does get media coverage that goes far beyond what you would think its influence would be. And this was noted in a U.S. Uh, media report from last year. It was actually like a journalism agency. I, I'll put it in the show notes uh, that talked about the coverage of Hong Kong versus sort of the other big stories around the world and the fact that Hong Kong got so much more media attention um, than other places. And I think it's 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 a result of the history here, being British for so long and then being handed back and then China coming out with this one country, two systems framework, which is very strange, uh, but it's an experiment to try and have a you know freewheeling open city and an author- authoritarian government. Um, But I've talked to many people over the years that have said, like, this is just bound to fall apart because it's impossible. You you can't have an authoritarian government and then a a free and open society with free press and free speech and free assembly. Like, it's it's just not something that can continue on. Um, And it was bound to to break apart. And I do have uh, I do have some sympathy for that argument. Hong Kong now, though, to to address your question, it is going out trying to find a PR agency to to help uh, fix its image. And it did work with a small agency last year a little bit, and they have put out a tender to hire a PR firm uh, this year. And my understanding is it has not gone well and that several global PR agencies have declined to bid for the contract because the Hong Kong government's reputation has fallen so far, uh, especially with the police brutality and things like that here. So, I mean, one of the big agencies that is trying to get it is Edelman. Um, they are the largest PR firm in the world. Um, and I, I, I have many, many contacts with Edelman, even here in Hong Kong. And I, I am looking forward to sort of talking to them a little bit more about that, because I know the Hong Kong government, they do want to get out there and start showing more positive images. And, you know, it, to be fair, the city is functioning fine. I mean, our stock market here has done very well. Um, you know, the city remains to be a very safe place. Uh, the internet's still not censored. You know, the, there's still crazy criticism of the government in the news media here. Um, so, so as bad as it's been, all of those things are f- continuing to function normally. But I wonder how long they can do so if perception changes, because sometimes perception is. Diffi- the most Nine difficult the yeah yeah exactly it's the most difficult thing to change too because if people perceive it a certain way it doesn't matter if it's functioning normally it just it just doesn't if if nobody trusts it and i think that's kind of the kind of the the fire that we're playing with at the moment right well and i mean isn't i mean the optics i mean if for for these pr firms who have sort of declined to to get involved in developing a pr campaign for for hong kong much of that must be based on the fact that 
they now see it as really, I mean, it's, it's beholden to Beijing. And why would we want to get involved with effectively supporting the Beijing government, um, which is what we would be doing if we were to try and get involved to, to support Hong Kong? I mean, do you think that there's at least some of that, some of that thinking is involved? Yeah, I think so. But I do think the Hong Kong government itself now is not viewed very strongly, even independent of the Beijing government. I mean, it's interesting on this on this um, security law situation. I mean, all of the big announcements are coming from Beijing and the liaison office, and Carrie Lam has kind of been pushed aside, actually, for the most part. I mean, China is now taking Hong Kong seriously and dealing with it directly. Uh, and that's that is something new. I, I and I struggle with this, Ewan, because like I, you know me, I've lived in Hong Kong a long time. I feel very strongly about the city. I have an emotional attachment here. Um, a lot of my friends are here and contacts and so on and so forth. So like I, I, I want to help Hong Kong too, but I also don't want to help the Chinese government. So you know it does. It is it is difficult to separate the two. And for the most part, I still believe they're separate. I mean, all of the officials and the secretaries in the Hong Kong government, they're all Hong Kong born and raised people. Um, but they're under a lot of pressure at the moment. And so they, you know, toe the party line and they have to do so. And it's kind of, it is unfortunate, the situation. Because up until even just a few years ago, the Hong Kong government was seen as very responsive. And, you know, when people spoke up or complained about something, you know, that something was addressed. Um, and that's that's falling apart now because I think that sets a precedent that Beijing isn't really comfortable with. Um, you know, the government should be a little bit more remote um, and not, not be in people's crosshairs so often. And I think they're trying to sort of introduce that here. And also the fact that when something's decided, there's no... There's no questioning it. It's done. So just give up. I mean, I think Beijing would love it if they could just break the will of the people in Hong Kong because they've done it so effectively in China. I mean, you've been to China. If you talk to people and say, you know, why is the pollution so bad? Don't you worry about that? Or do you worry about the litter, you know, on the road or whatever it might be? People just say, yeah, but there's nothing I can do about it. There's nothing I can do. You know, and that that that's a right, or or it's just it's a really foggy day. Yeah, it's just a really foggy day. Exactly. <laughs> like they know the government is not going to respond to them, and so they don't even bother to try. And that is the ultimate end game, I think, in Hong Kong, uh, is to get to that point where it's clear people have kind of given up, and they'll just make money and you know focus on those sorts of things instead. And that's that's so sad because that was one of the reasons i moved here from mainland china is people here had a a civic-minded uh, society they were doers um they make things make sure things work i mean everything here from the subway system to the government if you're filing tax i mean you deal with real people all the time everything's very efficient um and that's because the people sort of have that that demand for service at that level um but yeah i don't know i don't know you and it's gonna be it's gonna be a crazy crazy year i think again well, to, so to that point then, um, you know, what would you, what would your recommendations be to, you know, Fitzedelman or whatever PR company ultimately um, gets involved with sort of helping Hong Kong repair its image? I mean, what would be, what would you be recommending to, to the powers that be? I mean, what perspective or approach would you, would you take in trying to sort of bolster and improve that image globally? Well, number one, I my own view, and I stress these are just my own views, I, I don't think that they should begin an image rehabilitation program until the issues are resolved. Because what you could end up doing is spending 
millions of dollars on really nice ads or digital campaigns or whatever it might be. But if there's a protest that weekend, it just undoes all of that instantly. And so that to me is the first issue that has to be resolved is find some suitable solution to the conflict in Hong Kong first. And I don't know how they're going to do that. I don't even know what that's going to look like, which is probably why they've just jumped ahead to 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 the PR side. And I do think, you know, there were some examples of stuff out there. I saw one that just said, thank you or missed you Hong Kong or something. And it was sort of trying to appear emotional, kind of showing the city with a little heart around it and stuff like that. Um, I actually think that stuff can work, but people have to believe that it's true. And as long as there's protests, I just, I don't see how that can resonate with anybody. Um, there are people around the world that have lived here or have family or relatives here who, who love the city. I mean, it's a very beloved place. So that's out there. And I think it's fine to target that, but there has to be some substance there. It can't just be PR because it's not going to work anyway. And then if it is resolved someday, I think, um, I think appealing to Hong Kong still is a business center, oddly a dispute resolution center in Asia. I think the common law system here, I think, you know, the taxes, all the things that, that Hong Kong has had for a long time that draw, have long drawn people here. Uh, I think they'll have to go back and focus on those sorts of things for a business-oriented crowd and pull on the heartstrings a bit for, for, for other folks to try and improve the, the image of the city. But first, solve the problems. Show your support to the PR and Law Podcast by making a one-time donation or setting up a subscription with us on Patreon. Every little bit helps us keep the lights on and bring the show to you each week. If you'd like to chip in, please visit PRNLawPodcast.com. That's PRNLawPodcast.com. Click support the show. Thanks for helping us out. What have you got on deck? Well, you know, I wanted to talk about something. I've read a, a number of of articles over the over the last few weeks cam about you know the the idea of working from home but specifically within the legal profession i thought this would be kind of an interesting thing to talk about because really it's not restricted to the legal profession it could probably apply to a, a number of industries but this this idea or this notion that somehow working from home is inefficient relative to to being in an office and i i saw an article by uh a Canadian litigator who was arguing that you can't effectively work from quote unquote, you know, the, the comfort of your own home um, and talked That's about crazy required, talk. Re- well, well, yeah, but the, the, you know, this idea of requiring access to all of your files and you can't efficiently move between them. Um, and I was thinking what, you know, what sort of system uh, is this individual or this individual's firm uh, using? And, and I think it sort of speaks to a larger problem in the legal profession that I, I think is being addressed now in, in a way that it, it wasn't before. And it's being addressed in a lot of industries. And that's that we need to get on the rom- remote access train. Now, I understand that this seems like common sense to a lot of, a, a lot of business industries. They've been doing this for, for ages. They've had sophisticated, um, you know, remote cloud-based servers and instant messaging and video calls, but that's not the case for all industries. And, and I think, you know, litigation is one of those, one of those, um, areas of law where it continues to be, um, practiced by a number of, of sort of idiosyncratic 
um, it just completely out there practice methods that are largely still based on some pretty outdated notions of, of technology. So the idea that, you know, I can't figure out what's going on in a file without having a physical paper file in front of me, as opposed to simply having everything electronically in an online server, which of course you can access from anywhere on any piece of, of technology. Um, and there's still a lot of firms that are reluctant to making that transition to paperless. Um, and again, it, it, it sounds like, you know, this is a conversation that was, was sort of poached from the, the late nineties or something as if this is somehow, um, new it, and of course it isn't, but we're still seeing this in, mm-hmm. in, in the legal profession. Um, the courts have had to do all kinds of things to try and modernize effectively overnight. And that's been fantastic. Um, mediations and discoveries have, have been, um, they're being conducted electronically and virtually through um, different video conferencing technologies. And I think, again, that's fantastic. Now, is it the same as sitting in a room where you can, you know, look at the, the, the party that you're, you're interviewing or cross-examining or the mediator? No, of, of course not. I mean, I think that there's always an additional value and, um, and, and, and assistance in being able to see an individual in front of you and, and you know, pick up their, their eye movements, their hand gestures, their mannerisms, these things. There will always be value. But to suggest somehow that, um, you know, the virtual medium is completely useless and effectively should just be thrown aside, I think completely neglects the idea and the notion that the way that we practice law or the way that you do your job, regardless of, of what it may be, at least in a lot of professions, it's gone. It's fundamentally changed. And, and I think it's very, very naive to assume that when things go back to some semblance of quote unquote normal, and we're back working in our bricks and mortars offices, that everything is magically going to go back to the way that it was before. It's not. And when I read this article and, and, you know, the author went so far as to say that with other law firms closed, um, their law firm has a competitive advantage because they're physically in their office working through their paper files. I thought, okay, this is just, this is just so fundamentally, fundamentally wrong and out of touch um, with where we should be going. And frankly, where we, where we are in a, in a lot of firm environments. Yeah. Um, I mean, this is fascinating because I fight this constantly. You know me, I'm a technology first adopter most of the time. Um, I mean, in my personal life, I've gone completely paperless. I mean, uh, bills come in via email and it's filed away in a filing system that I used. Everything's OCR'd, which you know means so they're searchable. Uh, like literally everything... I, I don't keep paper now and um, I think it's great and it's been handy because you know I will I have had a case this is a true story I was in Vietnam and I wanted to open a bank account there and uh, I know that sounds weird <laughs> I had my reasons for doing it but I went into HSBC and they said you know we need your your employment contract and we need you know proof of your address and we need you know your last three bank statements from here and I thought yeah they're on my phone I can just grab those because the way things are set up, all that stuff gets filed away automatically and I can access my big database of files from my phone. And moments like that, it saves so much time. 
I mean, if I didn't have that, it would be, okay, remember this, fly back home, try and find the paper documents, get them, scan them in, send them off to Vietnam. You know, probably wait many days for them to receive and go through it. Like, it is just so much more efficient to, to, to be digital that way. I mean, do you think there's still a lot of law firms sort of in your, in your line of work that are still relying on paper to a, to a high degree? I, I know that there are. I don't think that there are. I, I know that there are. So what's preventing um, them? And, and again, I think part of this, again, it, it, it particularly in the, in, in, in the area of litigation, it, you know, it, it, it is a very, very particular, specific lifestyle. Um, and all litigators have their own sort of unique eccentricities and idiosyncrasies in the way that, in the way that they do it. And they're very particular. And for those litigators, particularly, and again, it's difficult not to be not to be ageist um, when when talking about this. But the reality is, is that generally speaking, it it's the older generations, the older generations that came up in an area in an era where there was no high speed internet, there were no virtual databases, everything was done by paper, and that's the way that they have practiced and developed their habits for 20, 30, sometimes 40, 40 odd years. Um, and they're not about to change now. And again, I, I accept that. That's that's fine. Um, but to then to take it a step further and somehow suggest that that somehow is a superior superior model, it simply isn't. I mean, I can think of times going to going to mediations or examinations for discovery, and you know, you sort of sit down with your client, and our entire firm, our entire practice is virtual. I mean, it's we we run a, a paperless system. I can access anything I need, much like yourself, from any device anywhere at, at any time. You know, when you walk into an examination for discovery, for example, and I will have, you know, typically a laptop. I will often bring my my iPad as well, you know, and use a program like Notability, which is fantastic. You and I, Cam, have talked about that many times before. And everything I need is at my fingertips. All of the documents, everything. And then I watch opposing counsel come in and he's, you know, he or she's carrying a, you know, a, a large litigation bag and possibly has come with a, with a junior who is, you know, carrying bankers boxes full of additional files and they're sitting there and, and granted things are organized, but they're still sifting through all of these paper copies That's stressful. of everything. And I'm thinking, well, it is stressful and, you know, it, it's sort of definitely contributes to some some PTSD for me going back to to sort of my 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 articling my articling year once upon a time where you know I was the individual who was doing that because everything was 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 paper based um but it's just so grossly inefficient and so prone to error perhaps you can't find the document or the document that you thought you'd organized at that tab isn't at that tab it's somewhere else and then what do you do? Well, then, you, you know, you have to send this junior back to your office to try and find the missing document or call your office and have someone bring it over. Whereas, you know, when it's all virtual, it's all virtual. It's all there. Mm. You know, if you, if you misplace something, you just pull it. You do a search for it in your virtual database. Bang, there it is. So, the, you know, the idea that uh, we're still existing in this world where people are, are so reliant on paper, um, it it I find it bizarre. I find it bizarre, and I think that I think that the COVID outbreak, people working from home. One good thing that will come from this is that finally there are a lot of law firms who are making that transition. You know, they've been 
somewhat electronically based or somewhat remote, and they now understand the value and the importance of, of basically just going full bore there. And it doesn't mean there isn't value working in your bricks and mortar office or walking down the hall and having a discussion with one of your colleagues. That's invaluable. That's not going to change or meeting with a client in person. Um, but to suggest that that should be the de facto status quo, it, it, it just doesn't make sense to me anymore. Yeah. I, and I hope we have a, you know, young and or digitally savvy listenership. I assume so. And I think we probably have some that uh, might not be. And I think, I, like, I, I wrestle with this a lot because, as you know, like, I, I've really gone full bore into this sort of stuff and I've always been into um, technology. But I think. You know, the one lesson for regular people is don't let yourself fall too far behind. Like over the years, I've, I've heard people say, well, like, you know, I don't need a smartphone or, you know, this phone's fine. I get all my calls on here. Like, that's fine when the iPhone comes out in 2007, maybe 2008, maybe 2009. But at some point, make the switch just for yourself. Because what happens is, is technology builds on itself. And so if it gets too far ahead of you, it's very, very difficult to catch up because each time there's some sort of evolution, there's some sort of new interface or new way to react or new way to solve a problem. And it's not learned because it was skipped. And by the time you get to a, a, you know, a, a more recent piece of technology or software, it then becomes very confusing because you haven't learned the, the, the way to interact with it. I think one example I see a lot still um, you know, is people on a phone sort of copying a URL and opening Safari or Chrome and pasting the URL in there or wanting to share something on Twitter or Facebook that way by copying the URL and opening Facebook and pasting the URL. When there's share sheet commands, you know, when you're on a web page, and again, this is common to, to everybody, but I mean, you know, you press the share button when you're on a web page that you like and it says, where would you like to share this link? And you say Twitter or email and then it does it for you. Um, you know, stuff like that seems so simple and so common to everybody, but there's even something at that level. Um, there are people that don't know that or don't know they can do that. And the reason that compounds is because later on, um, you know, there might be many more sophisticated things that you want to do with the data on your phone or your, or your iPad or whatever. Um, and you, you do need those commands to make them work. And if you don't know them, um, you know, you're, you're really limiting yourself and it's a, it's a, it's a really simple example, but I think if you take these small things and then you, you add, you know, another and another and another, this is how technology becomes just very difficult for people um, because then it's overwhelming and it's just so not familiar. It's not what they're used to. And, and so they, they walk away from it and then the problem just keeps getting worse. So, I mean, that's, that's my sort of one bit of practical advice. You don't need to master this stuff. You don't need to put your life in there. You don't need to become a tech nerd. But, you know, once in a while, just... Don't turn your nose up at everything. I mean, I'm not into, I, I'm not a millennial, so I'm not a big TikTok person. But I mean, I have opened the app. I downloaded it. I opened it. I looked through it. I know how it works. I know what it is. I'm not going to use it. I'm too old for it. Um, but at least I'm familiar with it. I mean, it's got 1.5 billion users now. It's at Facebook scale. Um, so, and by the way, Ewan, it is very addictive. <laughs> I opened, uh, I opened TikTok and I was in it for an hour the first time I used it. Uh, yeah, maybe, well, maybe you don't yeah. need to try TikTok actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, but, but I, th but your point is, your point is valid, right? And, and I think, again, part of the problem is what we're talking about is 
there's a there's a cultural shift here that's been imposed and i think for a lot of people in a lot of professions and again i can sort of i don't want to just harp on the legal profession because i suspect this is an issue in a lot of a lot of other professions as well but most people have been able to sort of carry on in whatever fashion they've been doing for you know however many decades and all of a sudden the technology was imposed upon them in a way that it hadn't been before because of COVID, because you couldn't physically go into your office. And it it doesn't surprise me in the least that that's being faced uh, with a great deal of, of backlash and reluctance from, from certain individuals because nobody likes being told you can't do things the way that you've always done them. And now you have to do them this way, but to sort of suggest that that new way is, is by definition inferior, I think is just, it's, it's really naive and it speaks to, you know, just a, a general, you know, a general problem with being open-minded to new ways of problem solving. And at least in litigation and in, and in law, much of what we do is finding unique and savvy ways to solve problems. To sort, so to, to suggest that we're just going to completely throw this thing off to the side because, hey, that's not the way I like to do it and it's just not going to work, um, that sort of flies in the face of, of, of what the very nature of our profession is supposed to be about. And the courts have talked about this as well. You know, the, the, the Superior Court here in the province of Ontario, it actually issued a direction to lawyers and basically said, you know, it's incumbent upon all counsel to try and resolve matters outside of the court to ease the burden on the courts, which are still in, in, in many regards shut down here in the province because of, because of COVID. And really it, it struck me as, huh, well, that, that's kind of interesting. I mean, why is, it, why is it now that the Superior Court is sort of issuing this edict? Really, this is supposed to be the very, the very notion of what we do as lawyers anyway, that really the goal mm-hmm. should always be to try whenever possible and avoid the courts and avoid litigation and try and resolve the matters outside of the courts. It's always in the best, in, it's almost always in the best interest of the clients to do so. And, you know, there's this old adage that, you know, the only people who win in litigation are, are the lawyers. And I, I think in, in many respects that still holds true. So I'm, I'm hopeful. I'm, I'm, I'm very, very hopeful that one of the silver linings that will come out of this will be that we will have, more alternatives to sort of traditional litigation, um, be it, you know, video conferencing for, for, for mediations or examinations for discovery, uh, more firms going paperless, um, less procedural hoops for, for getting things filed and issued with the courts. I, I'm, I'm very, very hopeful that we'll see a transition. But whenever I read articles like this, suggesting somehow um, that your firm has a competitive advantage because you remain in a, in a paper-based system um, and everybody's coming to work. Uh, I, I just think that that's, it's a really, really naive perspective and it just tells me that that individual in that firm is completely unaware of a lot of the technological advantages that are at their fingertips if only they knew how to use them or how to access them. I literally would not hire a firm that was like that. Like I feel that strongly about it because you're right. It does it does imply that they are not interested in improvement. They're not interested in exploring other better ways potentially at all. Um, it strikes me as a firm that would just be stuck to some degree. 
Uh, I mean, there's nothing wrong per se with continuing with certain methods over a long period of time. But I mean, in any line of work, any company, you would always have a sort of strategy department or person or somebody that's always looking for ways to do things more efficiently or do them better um, to some degree. And so it would just be it would be sending a horrible signal to to say that not only are we going to do this, you know, on paper, but we think it's better because the other thing is if, if that law firm burned down, I mean, what happened is all that stuff backed up or is it gone forever? I mean, that, that's another issue with this. I mean, y- you want to have at least digital copies of everything that you do in case of some sort of, you know, tragedy or, or earthquake or fire, whatever it might be. Um, you know, and even people in their private lives should do this, you know, have a, have a backup that's in the cloud, have a backup that's off, off premises and things like that. Um, yeah, I feel strongly yeah. about this one too. And you're right. A lot of people don't know what's there. And so, um, and I, I have some sympathy for that. I, I do run into people who say, they just don't know they can do something um, when they can. I feel like this would be a good uh, consultancy, this kind of role, dog. Because you can walk into companies and probably save them a lot of money um, and digitize them. And they'll be, I mean, when people see the results, if it's set up properly and people see the results, they become you know, advocates, huge advocates right away because they, they, they're just impressed. I mean, they're just impressed. It can be done so easily. Um, and so there's a lot of, there's a lot of room for that. Yeah, I agree. And I, and again, I think that this is an inevitability that, that COVID is going to impose upon the legal industry and, you know, a a number of, a number of other industries. And it, 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 it made me think about the financial crisis in 2008, 2009. Um, I, I articled, that year. So I just graduated from law school, got my first sort of articling position, really excited to get out there and, and, and learn how to practice. And all of a sudden, you know, the, the global economy blows up. And um, what was really, really fascinating about that period was that most law firms, particularly large full service law firms, you know, that practice uh, multidisciplinary areas of law and, and have hundreds of lawyers, um, and in some cases, thousands of lawyers across the country or across, you know, many countries. And those entry level positions of junior associates, typically much of what they were doing, particularly if you were practicing in, in, in corporate law or mergers and acquisitions, those sorts of areas, was what was called due diligence work. Well, due diligence work was really just a fancy way of saying, sit in this room comb through these boxes of documents and try and find something that is helpful or, or relevant to our case or could be problematic to our case or something that opposing counsel, you know, may want to rely on to, to, to really compromise our, our argument. And you would spend days, I mean, literally days, weeks, months, depending on, on the piece of litigation or the, the size of the matter, um, doing this kind of work. Well, after 2008, 2009, a lot of those jobs just overnight, they disappeared. Those entry-level positions at large law firms were gone, and they, they didn't return. But what was really, really interesting was that a new area of law sort of emerged out of that, which is now called e-discovery or electronic discovery. And what happened was those jobs where you know lawyers were charging hundreds of dollars an hour for, for junior associates to sit in rooms and comb through boxes, all of those boxes of documents were scanned and they were loaded into f- sophisticated electronic databases where individuals could comb through them, you know, hundreds of documents in, in an hour. 
And we're now at the point where there's AI-assisted reviews where, you know, the technology can go through and can drill down on the specific content that you're looking for and eliminate the specific content that you don't need such that it's a much more efficient process for the client, saving clients literally millions of dollars in in some cases. Now, was that good for entry-level associates coming out of law school? No, it was it was terrible. It meant that, you know, a segment of 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 the job market evaporated and, you know, was translated into precarious work of entry-level lawyers now making, you know, $40, $50 an hour, you know, working through electronic databases and combing through documents. But it did speak to technology at the end of the day is always going to rule, um, even in the sphere of, of litigation. And that technological change was largely imposed upon the industry because of the financial crash. And I think we're going to see the same thing happen here again. I think there's going to be some imposed technological changes that are going to impact the legal profession or the corporate world um, because it because it has to. And that fat is going to get trimmed and those positions aren't going to come back again. Yeah, I agree. I think um, we're going to be talking about the fallout from COVID-19 for years to come because it has touched so many different uh so many different sectors and so many different businesses uh, in different ways. And, you know, the connectivity online is, is, is such a big one. Um, yeah. It's going to be interesting to see how this plays out. Um, you and we are running uh, a little against the clock. Uh, anything you want to throw out there before we wrap this up? No, I, I don't think so. Um, other than again, please, um, if you're going to go out, please just be, be responsible, be respectful of others in your community. I know we harp on this every week, but um, again, just just be respectful. Practice social distancing. Wear your masks. Um, let's get things under control so we can all go back to work or go back to doing whatever it was we were doing before. You know, all of this all of this nonsense started. That's it. Yeah, I wonder when all this is going to end. I just, uh, this is the first week I felt a little bit depressed about it because I thought maybe this mask wearing is, I could be doing this for the rest of the year. And you and I, you know, we talked about doing um, Christmas this year in Vietnam. And uh, I mean, a couple of months ago, I had some family emailing saying, hey, like, what do you think is going to happen? Are we going to be able to do this or not? And I said, like, how am I supposed to know? <laughs> you know, I mean, Vietnam has right. very few right. cases, I mean, which is good. And it looks like Vietnam's going to be part of that bubble that I talked about last week. So I think uh, mainland China, Macau and Hong Kong are going to become the first bubble where you can travel between those three um, without a quarantine. And there's uh, people suspect Taiwan will be added to that next and then korea and vietnam were looked at the next two because they're doing very well uh, vietnam only had a few hundred cases total um but anyway i mean the way things are going it's looking again like it might be all right to plan ahead for december i think people are getting excited to book tickets but you just never know if there's a second wave and it's bad this could carry on for more than a year uh well yeah, yeah. i mean we we received confirmation uh this week from from the education minister here in Ontario that the schools will remain closed until the end of the school year. So there will be no possibility of any sort of reopening. Um, it's reopening in BC. Concerned. I read. Yeah, it's, yeah. Yeah. Well, and that was, that was sort of interesting. There was a lot of, uh, a lot of questions thrown at the government for that because um, 
schools have opened in in Quebec and in British Columbia and possibly some other provinces. I'm I'm not sure, but not here, not here in Ontario. And effectively, what that means is that means all the childcare centers are remaining closed and probably won't open until September. So, if you happen to have a child, um, and, and as you know, I've talked about talked about our daughter before. We certainly do. Effectively, what that means is. I will not be going back to any semblance of normal in terms of being in my office on a day-to-day basis until September at, at the earliest. So, you know, that, that was a bit of a blow to, to my wife and I, um, because it just sort of hit home that what we've been doing for the last seven weeks or so, or however long it's been, I, I, I have no idea. It's just, it's all one big blur, but it's not going to change until, September at the at the absolute earliest and even then that's not that's not a guarantee yeah who knows well uh keep your fingers crossed everybody that's basically all we can do oh yeah and wear the mask like you and said uh, keep that stuff in mind uh so we will wrap this up this was episode number seven went quickly uh thank you once again for joining us if you enjoyed the show please do share it with a friend or a relative uh anyone you think that might be interested in the subjects that we tackle each week uh we're also on social media and we're seeing our social media accounts climb quickly too you and uh so we are at pr law pod p-r-l-a-w-p-o-d and you can find us on facebook linkedin instagram and twitter that's the last one uh so for you and christy this has been cam mcmurchie thank you so much for joining us and we'll see you next week been the PR and Law Podcast with Cam McMurchie and Ewan Christie. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend or leave a review. You can also join us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook by following our account at PR Law Podcast. That's all one word, P-R-L-A-W Podcast. Thanks for your support. 